Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Good afternoon and welcome to Fire in the Belly. Today we have Ken Ken Faulkner. Ken, Kenny, which is which do you no, prefer? Ken, Ken's Ken Faulkner. So in, uh, please introduce yourself. Who have we got? Right, okay, you've got Ken Faulkner. Uh, Ken Faulkner, I am a coach and an emotional intelligence uh, coach working around the aspect of the emotional intelligence, how the outside world affects us and how we can perform in that world. But Ken Faulkner, let's take him back to the start. Mm-hmm. Who was he? Where did he come from? Uh, well, I was born in Larne okay. and I like to call the Larne town Mighty Larne. There you go, that's right on my street. So, <laughs> the Mighty town of Larne, a lot of people run it down, but we like used to do that, so you used to come down and take off our fruits that we have down here. So we're in what county? County Antrim. County Antrim. There you go. Northern, Northern Ireland for anyone not from Northern Ireland. So uh, brought up uh, in Larne all my life. Uh, my father, he worked in a, uh, or he actually owned a precast concrete yard where he manufactured okay. concrete. And that's where I would spend my school holidays behind a mixer or working in the yard brushing floors doing whatever so always had a work ethic you know taking time in the holidays spending time with your dad enjoying yourself Mm -hmm. and eventually uh, went through school and always wanted to be either a spark or a joiner Right. That was the two. It was hands-on. I wanted to become an electrician or a joiner. and Very solid trades, very honest. and Yeah, yeah, they were, they were good trades. And I was, I was hands-on and I had good hands. Very kinesthetic. Mm-hmm. And I was going to the local grammar school, which they said I was... I needed to push myself more academically. Mm-hmm. But I'm 56. Mm-hmm. And when you go schools away back in the black and white days, <laughs> that's what you had to do. So after what we call the O-levels, okay. uh, I had a wee bit of a dis... That's GCSE. GCSE. GCSE, yeah. 15-ish? Yeah. 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 Okay. So 15, 16. Yeah. I had a wee bit of a fallout with the headmaster. Right. Uh, with <laughs> regards to the construction trade, because I wanted to be part of the construction trade. Okay. My dad was in the construction trade. My granda, uh, he was in the construction trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a foreman. Mm-hmm. And in fact, during the war, he built bridges in India. That was where he was. So construction was in my blood. And I had a disagreement because back in those days, academia was the big thing. And the phrase that was probably given to me was, you're much better than the construction industry. Mm-hmm. Which was from, from, who? Where from the headmaster from? of right. the, the school I was in. Okay. And you know what? The headmaster is a total gentleman. And I saw him last week. 
So a lot of time for that man. But you know that was that was a way back in the old days where if you were at a grammar school, you would expect to have academia. Mm-hmm. That was back in the days you used to learn Latin. Mm-hmm. You know that far back. <laughs> so I left after what we called our O levels. Mm. I went down to the local tech and then took up a trade as a joiner. Okay. Uh, so I was doing uh, day release as a joiner down there. Uh, worked to my father and became a mould maker and helped make moulds work in his his factory. Okay. Uh, and I put myself through that for a lot of years. I would say, I uh, just joke, it took maybe 12 years to serve the time because you did that many jobs. Mm. You didn't really get doing joinery as much as what you would have liked to. Sure. So we went through that process and I used to do a lot of other outside joinery work. I used to fit kitchens, put on roofs, used to do that just to bring up my own skills. Mm. And uh, eventually, my father, he retired. Uh, it was hard graft, what he was doing, and he had his first set of plastic hips at it. I think it was 45, and had another set in at 54. Right. Uh, so he had burnt himself out quite, quite well with the, the, the type of intensive labour that was involved. Mm. Uh, so I didn't really like the whole idea of getting plastic hips in at such a young age. So. Mm. I sort of went my own way. My, my father had to retire through ill health. And I managed the company for about a year for another firm. And then I started site work. They're probably a wee bit cheeky back then because I saw one of the local builders uh, had been putting a lot of uh, planning applications in. Mm-hmm. So I thought, yep. Yeah. <coughs> I'm going to apply for a foreman with these guys. So I rung up the managing director and said to him, here you're looking for foreman. And he said, no, we're not. I said, but you must be, you're putting so much stuff through planning at the moment. You need foreman. Mm. And he says, no, we're not. I said, what about joiner? You could do with a joiner, couldn't you? And he says, yes, I need a joiner. So I started the following Monday with him as a joiner. Uh, before that, I worked with another local company just for a couple of years, mm. doing roofing and kitchen fitting and general joinery, joinery works. So I started my site works, really, mm. uh, in the construction industry. Uh, the guy who I started work with, uh, I'll not name the, the company name, but the guy who I started with, I eventually left them and came back to them, and that's where I ended up. As director of construction, many many years later. Wow. Okay. But when I started with him, because I was a bit cheeky with him, he said he would take me on for six months as a foreman, but give me the opportunity, or sorry, as a joiner, mm-hmm. give me the opportunity to become mm-hmm. foreman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, he kept me as a joiner for about a month, and he brought me into his office, and he says, "I need to speak to you about something." And when I come in. In my head, I was doing a good job. In my head, I was the best handyman, snagman that they had ever had in my head. And I thought, okay, he's coming in to give me a relative. And I stepped into his office and he says, how are you fitting in in this company? And I says, oh, I think I'm fitting in okay. That's up to you. Well, he says, I want you to go to Victoria Road which is a different site. 
So I says, okay, you want me to change side? Everything okay on the other side? And he says, no, no, you've, you're fine. I want you to go to this other side in Ballyclare. So on the Monday, that's where I went. And he called me one week later. And he says, from Monday onwards, you're now the foreman up on that side. So within starting with him, and it was probably six weeks, and I became one of his foremen. Hmm. Now, because I was cheeky with him, he was cheeky with me too. So he kept me on the same salary for the six, <laughs> <laughs> for the six months. <laughs> yeah. So that was fair enough. Sure. You know, he gave me a job, he gave me a title, and he gave me, and this is the important thing, he gave me total control of that site. Wow. You know, it wasn't as if there was someone shadow or I was shadowing someone mm. the other foreman left the site to go to Belfast and this guy gave me total control of that site so what age were you there that's because that's a lot of that's a lot of control I was probably in 24 25 at the most okay you know was and to go in there uh, we built about 100 houses on that site yeah and I stayed with these guys for quite a few sites mm-hmm. uh and coming up through the whole foremanship, uh, sometimes you look across and you see things might be greener somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And because I had had a background in manufacturing and concrete, mm-hmm. uh, there was a company down in Portadown called Turkington. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were looking for a sales and marketing manager. So I applied for it. And I got the job down there, mm-hmm. so I went down to Portadown and worked there for a few years in the factory down there as their sales and marketing manager and that, that was actually good, that was actually, gave me a lot more learning and gave me a lot more information, uh, certainly with regards to bigger clients, bigger customers. You know, we were working with uh, my father when he was doing, he was looking for small builders. Hmm. smallish builders who were maybe only building maybe 100 to 150 houses a year and now I was going to get involved with Northern Railways or was you know, the sleepers for the whole networks so I was getting involved with uh, specialised products uh, and bringing my background into it we were using some of the products that they made uh, out into the public domain mm-hmm. because that company at the time back then they did a fair bit of security work way back okay. in the past so, so <coughs> they were doing sort of specialised structures hardened mm. structures and things so yeah I worked in there quite well and people were coming to me saying would you not come back and do site work mm-hmm. and I was never really tempted until one day I got a phone call and whatever was happening in my life that mm-hmm. month or whatever, uh, I did threaten to leave my job to go to a site mm-hmm. and they must have appreciated me quite well because they said I'll give you £5,000 to stay, uh, which I said okay I'm staying and then of course I was told don't ever do that again, if you're going to make a hint about leaving I don't want any hints, next time you're going to make that statement of intent I want it in a brown envelope and I want it in writing so I stayed for another two years mm-hmm. and then guess what mm-hmm. the brown envelope with the statement of intent uh, and I did leave the company to go back on to site work again 
Uh, so we worked on a wee site in Creek Avon, worked through it, uh, did, I think it was about 110 houses, just over about a year and a half down there. Right. So that was quite a good build. Oh. Really, really enjoyed the construction. The thing is, with the construction, you're, you're given a drawing, you're given a field, oh. and when you step away from it, there's something tangible. Oh. There's roads in, there's drainage in, all the stuff even below that, that the customer doesn't see. I used to love drainage. Used to love what was underneath the ground, the infrastructure below the ground, and then coming right over to handing a key over to someone where they it is their home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just love the whole idea from concept, from planning straight through to final product. Uh, Join that, and then I heard that my old company up in County Antrim, mm-hmm. uh, they were now looking for a foreman again. So I left where I was, and you know, I was very, very mutual. It was sort of three months' notice. I'm going to leave here in January. Mm-hmm. This is what we need to do before I leave. So it was, it was a planned and it was a well organised exit mm-hmm. from where I was. And started in January, way back in 2004, to start a site in Antrim. Mm-hmm. And I think it was 96 units in this. And we started in January, and by Easter time the following year, all 96 units had been built. Well, that was in the you know the mm-hmm. the good times I suppose. Sure. Uh, loved my work. There was never a day where I woke up and thought I have to go to work. Mm. And there's very few people have that. People go through work their whole life, and you know what? It's they get up in the morning and they're oh shit, not another Monday morning. They, mm. they go through this whole process. And I can honestly say there was never a morning that I didn't enjoy getting up sure. to go to work. I loved it. That's great. Loved the construction. Uh, and as I went through the construction, that was back in 2004. I was very quickly elevated through foremanship to contracts manager and eventually ended up uh, director of construction for that company. Mm-hmm. And... The, the, the wages were fantastic the perks were fantastic the, you know everything about the whole job was really good mm. and they were even paying me for doing what I loved to do mm. so although it was very very successful with regards to construction mm. and my working life I also had this other side of me mm-hmm. where it was a lack of confidence uh, and that lack of confidence really portrayed itself in many different ways. I always grew up with the belief that I was stupid, I wasn't good enough. And I was brought up with that personal belief. And when you have an identity like that, when you have a belief system like that, you start to think about things. You start to think, why am I in this job? Do I deserve this job? The paranoia comes in. Mm. Am I doing a good job? Why are these people accepting me? And you know, one part of your brain saying, well, you're, you're in the job because you're doing a bloody good job. How else would you be there? And the other part saying, but no, you're not. So th- these were the things that was chewing away at me. Mm. Uh, 
It's obvious we're seeking approval. And that changes who you are as a foreman. So I wasn't one of these these authoritarian type foremen. Okay. I was always the type of foreman who liked the team around him and you were you were showing each and every person respect. Like if there's a groundsman there, I'm gonna respect him for being that groundsman. Mm. You know, if there was an electrician then I was going to respect him as being that electrician. Mm. Bricklayer, same. The thing is, as a foreman, you're managing these guys. Sure. And we all know what's good work and what's bad work. And you never ever have to tell a tradesman that this is bad work. He'll know. Hmm. And that was the sort of approach I took to that. You know, maybe set up a level and just stick it at the foot of a house and then go upstairs and just measure out with the window to see if it was off plumber. And you, the bricklayer would come up after it. Well, how much was it off? You know, I would do wee things like that. I would maybe get down in my hungers and look across. Hungers is down in your knees. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know that word. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. And look across the a foundation to check it for level, mm. to look across at an angle. And these are the wee things that I would do just to let the other guys know that I was keeping an eye on them. Sure. Uh, and as a manager, you don't need to know everything within that trade, hmm. but you certainly need to know what the end product is going to be. Sure. It has to, there's a, there's a map, there's a plan made, and it has to be to that plan as accurately as possible. So good on well with the guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't the big stick beating anybody. Mm-hmm. That was just as it was. Uh, but I always needed almost approval. Mm. You know, I, at times it was tough. There was a couple of guys I had, and I would ask them advice on a particular thing, like a groundsman. He says, "Oh, you, I'm only going to get paid from the the neck down." And I says, okay, well, can you take from your neck down and get your digger into your glory and get it off my site? Because I want people who will work from the top of the head down. Mm-hmm. You know, this whole attitude, I'm only paid from the neck down, is the biggest load of bullshit that people have out there. Mm. You know, be responsible. Have you responsible for the quality of work that you're going to give. This crap of people... And I have warned so many tradesmen over the years, do not let your boss steal your identity as Mm. a tradesman. Because a lot of people were getting away with as little as what they could, knowing that it wasn't good. Mm. And we have to be the best version of us possible. Whether we're tradesmen, whether we're now coaches, well, no matter what we're doing, we have to be the best version of that. You have to have integrity. You have to make the effort. So I went through uh, the foremanship. Uh, at that stage, remember the housing boom? Mm-hmm. Well, everybody was buying houses, left, right, centre. There were unemployed people in the local town here. Unemployed people buying houses. Mm-hmm. 2007? 2007, 2008. Mm-hmm. And we were all buying houses. Mm-hmm. We were buying whatever we could get our hands on. The banks were throwing money at us. Mm-hmm unemployed people as long as they could prove they were going to rent it out mm-hmm. they were getting mortgages self-cert self-certification that's exactly what it was so I of course 
was buying houses. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't I? Everybody the, else was. You're in the game? So I bought a lot of houses. I think there was about 11 in total. And then what happened? The collapse came. Mm -hmm. And the collapse came and because of my upbringing, my morals, my beliefs, my values, uh, that all collapsed around me. Because now I had houses which I had remortgaged to buy more houses. And it was one of those. And everything I had was in negative equity. Mm. So you work your life, this was just what, 10 years ago, I suppose, really, isn't it? Uh, 2007, 2008, uh, the big collapse happened and I got caught up in that and this whole not feeling good enough really, really hit me. That really come back and I've talked to it, I'm a coach now and I've used this expression, the shitty committee, they all sit around the back of your shoulder and neck and they all talk into the back of your head. And they just remind you of all the things that you maybe used to think when you were young. You're not good enough. How do you think you could have done that? You're stupid. You're what a useless husband you are. You brought your wife into this. Everything was in joint names. Mm. And I was riddled with hurt and guilt and shame. So on one side of my life, I had a great facade. But inside, I was torn to bits. Absolutely torn to bits riddled with guilt I had to file for bankruptcy which I didn't do to about 2012 so I survived 2008 to 2012 anything I'd ever saved had gone uh, my bank accounts went into a raid and that's when I had to hold my hands up because up until then I just buried my head in the sand mm. and I wouldn't advise anybody to do that but I did I buried my head in the sand. I didn't want to speak to anybody. My wife, uh, I had brought her into it. I had so much guilt and shame around bringing her with me that mm. you know the, we, we were almost disconnect. You know, uh, and I wouldn't even have blamed Denise for thinking I was having an affair or something because there was no connection with us. I just, I felt so ashamed. How did that and manifest guilt. with you? It manifested that I clammed up. I went into overdrive. I continued to work long hours. High functioning anxiety, is that what they call it? Where you're working, you're trying to keep other thoughts in your head that you do something else. It's, it's a form of an addiction. Mm. Some people hit the bottle, some people hit the drugs, whatever. Uh, to be fair now, at that time I went out most weekends. So mm. there was a pain point. There was something I was trying to self-medicate. So there was a self-medication going on then. Mm. That, I suppose, pulled my wife and myself further apart. Uh, because I just needed to quieten down inside my head. Mm. And at that stage, I couldn't. And I was in the garage. Uh, my son had a wee gym set up in the garage and he was training and he was doing classes around local church halls. And then he had a wee PT room in the garage. Mm -hmm. uh, we're in a gym here now. This is now his gym that mm -hmm. he's, he's taken from that. Mm -hmm. uh, I suppose five years later. But uh, in the garage, I was looking at the eyebolt that I had put up on the steel beam. 
and he had asked me to put it up for one of these TRX type things mm. listen that's something to do with fitness you know that <laughs> I'm not that much of an athlete but that was some equipment that he was going to hang from it mm. but I saw another purpose for it I had saw the eye bolt I had saw my wee two step Ikea step ladder that almost every family has that was Ikea's biggest selling uh, commodity at one point was there a wee step ladder a wee beat step ladder with two steps and I looked at the blue rope up on top of the cupboard in the garage and I made that connection and because of the voices in my head because of the low self esteem because of the guilt because of the worthlessness and the feeling of worthlessness at that point I considered hanging myself that's when I got angry because I was never really a massively angry person and I became angry with myself that the thought even came in how could that thought come into my head I have a job I have colleagues at work I am prestigious on the face of it Hmm. I'm winning NHBC awards for my builds when I became contracts manager and director of construction my foreman were winning awards but on the underbelly of that my true belief my identity who I believe myself to be all come back up again to the point that there was so much pain I considered hanging myself now no one ever wants to hang themselves they just want the pain to go away that's all they're wanting they just want the pain to go away and that's important to remember for anybody who's addicted to anything I don't care whether it's candy floss or cocaine I don't care if it's Mars bars or marijuana I don't care if it's alcohol when someone has an addiction it could be your social media it could be your phone Mm. with me it was overwork I was working late nights it was continuing to work so when that addiction had come in late work and then the weekends out the addiction was telling me something but I didn't see it at the time so I want to put it out there if anyone there has an addictive behaviour really I want you to consider why have you got that addiction what pain are you trying to medicate Mm because that's all an addiction is don't let people judge the addiction but look behind the addiction look behind the addiction to find out why the addiction not what the addiction Mm. why the addiction because it could be buying shoes Mm. it could be shopping it could be anything there's so many addictions out there and it's the same way as people are not afraid of the dark Mm -hmm. they're afraid of what might be in the dark Mm. okay so that was probably the turning point in my life Pete that was the turning point in my life because I was angry I was cross I had come to a point in my life where I had felt that I had served no purpose Okay. one of the big things in my life was when I had to go through the whole bankruptcy process and open new bank accounts and things uh, my parents in their wisdom had called me Andrew Kenneth Falconer right 
but they called me Kenneth Falconer. Mm-hmm. So everything that I've ever had has been Ken Falconer or Kenneth mm-hmm. Falconer. Mm-hmm. And that's been my, even in my license at the moment, it says Andrew Kenneth, mm-hmm. I've always signed Kenneth. So to the point my very identity was stole, because I was opening up bank accounts and all, I had to go back to Andrew and had to go back to, um, Prudential was one of the big ones. Yeah. Oh, the fight I had with them trying to keep my policies in place mm-hmm. because they thought I was some random guy. No, that's not you. I just go back and get my signatures from when I was 20. It's the same as it is now. Mm-hmm. But they were expecting me to change my signature to Andrew simply because now all the official papers were opening up new accounts and all. Sure. So I was, I was completely lost in that wee world of mm. having no identity at all. And that was tough. I never mm. told you this before, but that's yeah. that was a that was a when you give your kids names, use mm. the name that you give them. Give them the first name and use that first name. Don't give them a, a first name and then use the middle name. Were you named after someone, or was there a reason? No, that was just my name. I'll do Kenneth Falconer. Mm. I've actually uh, I'm called Ken or Kenny or Kenneth. Mm. Uh, my son's called Andrew Kenneth Falconer, but he's called Andrew or Andy. <laughs> he's not going to see the same process as I went through. Because that left me in a void. I was actually in a void at a time with regards to trying to get bank state or bank accounts open. And there's a whole logistical mess uh, which contributed to me being a nobody. Mm -hmm. Which contributed to me being nothing, non-existent. Because that's what I felt I was. And that's what had proved itself with the bankruptcy and with the houses and all the rest in my head mm. at the time so that was the best thing that ever happened to me and that's I can say that with a smile on my face now the bankruptcy was the best thing that ever happened to me no way because I was able to see in my head I was the only one in the whole world that this had happened to but it happened to so many people. And I realised that shit happens sometimes. These things happen that are out of our control. Like even the house that I was living in, the banks had told me that it was worth 285,000. This is one of the reasons why I went into bankruptcy. They had told me the house I was living in was 285,000. In fact, they'd give me a checkbook which said I could write a cheque up to 90% of the value of that house. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So there was a house at 285000 Give me a chequebook. I went and bought a big £400,000 house on the peak of the market and was able to write a big fat £200,000 cheque and stick it down and then take a mortgage for the rest. Guess what? I never mm. got the other house sold. And I'd written a cheque of 200000 on the back of that house being worth that value. That was the times too. Yeah. And within four weeks, mm. I couldn't sell the house for 90000 Within four weeks, I couldn't sell it for ninety. Mm. So, the thing was, and, and this is what I want to say with regards to the property portfolios, and there's a lot of guys out there and you've got the fire in the belly and there's people doing the portfolios and things. Mm. I actually did sit with my wife before the whole market collapsed mm. and I had all the portfolio out and I had all the houses ready to sell. And they were sat in a row and to be honest, Denise didn't even know that I had some of the houses. She was just signing bits of paper. 
because that's what a wife does when your husband's doing property development. Mm. She didn't even understand what was happening. Mm. And at one point, I was going to sell all the properties and we were going to be five or six hundred thousand pounds. And you know what? It became sentimental. Mm. These people are just in there. They're, running, they're having a baby next month. I can't sell that house. Mm. And I went through all the people in the houses and I sold one house, I think, out of the 11. Mm. All the rest, I had a sentimental attachment to it. Mm. And I didn't have enough wit. <laughs> I didn't have enough knowledge. I didn't have enough experience to know that I could have sold the house with a sitting tenant. Yeah. But I didn't do that at the time. Yeah. So I kept all the properties. And then six months later, of course, they were all down the pan. Mm. And the people that I were so worried about, they didn't give a toss about me. Mm-hmm. So you learn a lot. And when you're in your development stage, don't take things emotionally. Don't get emotionally connected. Mm. You know, set your plan. If you have a plan, set your plan that you're going to do X, you're going to do Y. When it becomes X or Z, you're going to then have an exit strategy for that. Mm-hmm. And make it as clear as that. Make it almost like a formula that when this happens, this has to happen. Because when you bring in the emotions to it, you're going to make the wrong decisions. And I'm not saying don't be empathetic. I'm not saying, you know, don't uh, have feelings or emotions. What I'm saying in the business world, Mm. keep your emotions for your family and the people that you love. In the business world, treat it as a business. Mm And that's where my downfall was. That's that's where my downfall was. I was I was keeping it too personal. Yeah. I was almost treating my tenants as friends or family. How did that feel once it's all the, the sort of house of cards started to come down? Once it came down I realised that they weren't friends or family. <laughs> it was as simple as that. And that was the big realisation. Hmm. That it became a very lonely place. So the House of Cards, they collapsed. I took the consequences of it. Uh, and that was fine. That was fine. And I'm happy enough to learn that in my life. Mm. And you said to me earlier on, you know, why were you happy that you went through that? Because I've learned now that keep your emotions, keep your love have your family have your friends your relations bring that circle of people around you but when you go for your business keep that separate Mm. keep it separate there's so many people out there and they have made the wrong decision because of emotional attachments or they have not even made the decision at all because of emotions Mm. but that's what I do now Mm -hmm. Because when that all happened, I continued to work in the construction for another six years. Mm-hmm. Part of my journey was for me to uh, release myself mm-hmm. from this pain that I was in. And part of that journey, uh, I became a hypnotherapist. Because how, all the, how did that come about? I mean, you don't just... How did it come about? It's, it's quite strange because consciously, I knew what had happened consciously there's nothing wrong with us because 
no matter what you may have, if there's anyone out there with anxiety or depression or an addiction or whatever, like most people who smoke consciously know mm. that they shouldn't be smoking. Mm. So consciously, there's nothing wrong with us because consciously we know there's a solution. Mm. That's the reason why we don't take that solution. Yeah. And that's exactly where I had to go. I had to go into the world of the subconscious. I had to fix my identity, my belief system that I am an equal, the belief system that I am good enough, and stop beating myself up for mistakes, because that's what I was doing. How did that come about to suddenly have that realisation? I mean, was it someone you knew, or was it something you'd seen? Or? Listen, I hypnotised my first person in Form 1 when I was at school. Right. I was in the physics lab with a swinging weight. Right. And I put this guy into trance. I was always interested in the mind. Uh, and we, we hypnotised this guy and we'd give him a task to do, which was to go and clean the blackboard. Now, the teacher had spent all lunchtime in the physics room writing up all these formula for us. And this guy was going up to clean the blackboard. <laughs> and I actually had to pull him to the ground with a, a rugby style tackle because he that guy was going up to do that he was convinced he was under hypnosis wow. I didn't know anything about hypnosis at that stage mm. apart from that it scared the crap out of me you must have seen it or heard it I've seen it I've saw the swingy weight bit I was always interested in a wee bit of magic a wee bit of hypnosis and it was always an interest of me mm. of mine rather so I wrestled him it was worth a detention mm -hmm. just to see that happening at the time but that was the first person so <laughs> I was probably 14 at the time when I hypnotised my first person I didn't know what to do with it I didn't know what I was doing mm. but when I left school and remember I was telling you I was a hard worker mm -hmm. I was working long hours in fact I was an HGV driver at one point driving a lorry for my dad to the mm -hmm. stuff so it was 6 o'clock in the morning to maybe 7 o'clock at night and I sort of missed the kids I missed mm -hmm. the firstborn and that's one of the things we do you know I missed I missed bringing Robert up the firstborn and you know every action has a consequence and the consequence of me mm -hmm. working long hours where missed growing up with Robert. Sure. So that was a negative consequence. And parents, what they do is they try and they talk about giving quality time to their kids. And you know what I was doing? I was working long hours. I was earning money. I was taking Robert away and the mm. kid, he was the only kid we had at the time, away on a two-week holiday. Because that was quality time sure. in my head. Yeah. so I don't see my own kid for 48 weeks in a year make a big thing about them at Christmas and we go away for a fortnight in July yeah. and the kids think that's quality True. kids do not understand quality time yeah. let me put it out there let me say that any parent anybody who has young children kids have not the concept of quality time they have the concept of time with you as a parent yeah. You don't have to spend big money, and Christmas time will tell you that. Because you could spend two or three hundred pounds on your kids, and then they end up playing with a box mm. that the toys came in. Yeah. I have done it time and time with my own kids that you put stuff on the floor for them to play with, you blow up a balloon, and you just beat it into the middle of the floor, and they spend the next hour trying to keep this balloon up in the air. 
Mm-hmm. That's the quality time they need. That's just time. So, parents, spend time with your kids and keep the quality for your work. Keep the quality for the adults in your working life. Mm. And use your quality there. Use your integrity, integrity. Use your skills. Use your knowledge at work, and produce good quality. Kids just want tickled. They just want chased. They just want going to the park. They just want hugs. That's all kids want from their parents. Right, we tangent there. No. Where were we? Where were we? That's just a. That's just a. I suppose. On my upbringing, that's yeah. maybe a reflection sure. of coming into a family where my father worked all mm. the time. So when we're conditioned that way, you know, I was the same with my firstborn. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that was wrong. So I changed the whole concept of my life around the kids after that. Are you close to your father? Not close, close. Close in the sense I worked with him every single day, mm. but not massively close a lot of respect for him a lot of respect for my dad mm, why uh, but he never played with us why did you respect him respect him because he's, he's your father and he's provided us with everything that we needed and that was that was sort of drilled into us at the time you know it was your parents provide everything for you and if it if it wasn't for your daddy working hard at work, working all these long hours, you wouldn't have this. Mm-hmm. And this was the whole concept of working long hours to get two weeks of a holiday. Mm-hmm. And then you go on the holiday, your dad said, "Would you give me peace? <laughs> give me head peace. I'm on holidays. You? Mm-hmm. you know, it was one of them things." But it's, what did your dad call you? Uh, he called me Kenneth. And in work, I always called him dad. Hmm. And he said to me one time, why do you not call me Jim? And I said, because you're my dad. <laughs> and that was something that meant a lot to him. Because hmm. even though I was in my 20s, sure. I, I always, always called him dad. Hmm. Yet there was other father-son combinations working and they called each other the first name. And he did actually ask me one time, hmm. why do you not call me Jim? Because you're my dad. And I suppose there was a wee bit of reinforcement or something he was looking sure. for as well to see if that connection was there. Makes sense. So, uh, and then brought up very religiously, uh, very strict. So good morals, values, beliefs. They were there. But when you say religiously, what, what does that look like? What does it look like to me? Right. Because it's all opinion, isn't it? Sure. Well, Remember, I'm 56. Mm-hmm. This is the old days. Mm-hmm. You're not that old. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not letting you away with that one. You know? so, you're not 90, you know. Right, well, this is this is back in the days where there was punishment. Okay. Okay, so the stick was brought out quite a lot. The strap was brought out quite a lot. By whom? By, it was mostly my mum, to be honest. Okay. So there was an authority figure in the house, and that was mm. my mum. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're brought up, and remember we talked about earlier on about my confidence and not being mm-hmm. good enough. I never ever felt I could make the mark. I was never good enough. Because I was always getting punished. No, I was no angel either. Mm. I was no angel. Mm. Uh, what were you looking for? Love. Love. Connection. Mm. Uh, when you're brought up 
and rules, regulations, beliefs were literally hammered into you. Mm. Well, you're starting off your life with a hell of a lot of guilt, aren't you? Mm. And then when you're brought up religious, it sort of takes in another thing because now you have a religious belief where there's going to be hellfire and damnation at the back end of it Mm -hmm. if your behaviours aren't right. So there was a lot of guilt I grew up with on how I should behave, how I should perform and the consequences of not uh, abiding by those rules, those regulations. And that generally was... You know, well, I'll tell you one example. Mm-hmm. Coming home from school, and it used to be the days that you have to carry your wee envelope home with your report on it. Mm-hmm. And me coming home with sweat on my brow, knowing whatever the teacher had written in this, mm-hmm. the conscious consequences was that I was going to get a reward mechanism of maybe heading out for a dinner because mm-hmm. we used to get rewarded with food Okay, that was a reward mechanism with us we would head out to a local restaurant or whatever mm. or the consequences was you were going to get five minutes of a strap or a bamboo cane around your ass <laughs> and you were walking home with this brown envelope mm. and then you open it up three worst words that any teacher can ever write could do better I'll show you better I'll show you better. And then you go. Mm. And you take the consequences of it. Mm. Now, this is the last week in June. You've got two months of not even going to school. And you've just had a hammer and just to start off your summer holidays. Mm. Because you didn't do as well as what you should have. Mm. So there's a difference. And this is going to be controversial saying this. Some people are brought up through love. Mm. And some people are brought up through guilt. Uh And I was brought up feeling I could never reach the expectations of my parents. I was never reaching the expectations of what was demanded from me. Uh And the consequences of not reaching those expectations was a beating, was a slap. If you were lucky, it was the hairy side of the back of the hand. <laughs> you know, sometimes it was the, it was the shiny side. <laughs> Think that's the way they felt? Hmm? Think that's the way they felt? Or is that the way you felt? That's my perception of what mm. was happening. But mm. then again, it did happen. Mm. You know, but then, you know, when you go back another generation before that, then my mum left home at a very, very early age. She left home before 14. Mm. Wow. There's reasons for that. Sure. I know all these reasons now, mm. now that I'm a coach. Sure. But there's reasons. Mm. And all someone does is bring up their own kids with the best of their ability, with the information that they have at the time. There's no parent ever purposely wants to hurt their kids. Mm. And if there is, those parents should be locked up. Mm. there's no parents ever wants to purposely hurt their kids but they will bring them up to the best of their ability with the information that they have at the time Mm. and way back in those days it was okay to smack I remember getting caned at school quite quite regularly 
that was another thing quite regularly because that was the punishment of the day mm. and I still have respect for those teachers who used to cane me the punishment isn't an issue that was acceptable that's only when you're punished wrongly mm. that's only when you're punished unjustly Mm. It's only when you're punished when you didn't deserve to be punished. Mm. And that has to be made clear. Like most of our teachers would be in jail now. <laughs> if you were going to use the rule the law of the land now yep. compared to way back in the seventies and early eighties. Sure. <laughs> you know, but the thing was we had that respect. And when we did wrong we expect it to be punished. Mm. Okay. And the thing is, with a teacher, it was a controlled environment. Because basically, the ruling was, if you didn't do your homework or whatever, you held your hand out, you got maybe <coughs> once or twice in the end of the fingertips. Mm. That was it. That was your punishment. And so what had happened was that when you punish your children when you're angry, Mm. that's when it becomes unjust mm. because all the parent is doing is unleashing her anger onto someone else mm. okay you might have done something in the shopping centre which embarrassed your mum mm. and your mum's not hitting you because you've done something wrong she's hitting you because she's embarrassed mm. <laughs> that should never happen mm. that should never ever happen so punishments should be directed for the reason that they're being directed for a learning. Now the punishment nowadays is sitting in the naughty step. The punishment nowadays is maybe having your laptop taken from you. The punishments are all changed, but there yeah. still has to be consequences for all our actions. Hmm. What's your key values? Key values. Well, I'll tell you what they are and they're still there. Honesty. Honesty is a big one. I would mm. be truthful. Why? Because it was literally hammered into me. Mm. And you know what? And that's not, you know, although I got what I needed, I would never disregard that because honestly, uh, not telling lies to anybody, stealing, theft, that's another one. Oh my goodness. You know, these. That's the core values that mm. you would expect anybody to have. You'd expect someone to... Like, I've got tradesmen working up in my house today. Mm -hmm. They came to my house. I totally trust them in my house. Because my value is to trust other people and people to trust me. Mm. And the person who is in my house, well, they're walking about my house using extension leads, whatever they have to do. Mm. But I totally trust them. So there's a great value. Mm. It's when you have a value. Like a lot of people and a lot of businessmen have values which they have a conflict with. And when they have a conflict with their own values, that's where they have the internal voices in their head. Mm. And that's where I get all my work from now, of course. Sure. That's called emotional intelligence. Mm. So if you have a value that... Uh, Say you're a businessman and you're pulling the wool over other people's eyes. That you're maybe deceiving them in some way. Mm. That you're 
it's like a car dealer who sticks a lot of sawdust into the back axle to stop it from making grinding noises or something like that (laughs) (laughs) and he would do that Hmm. but would expect him to be able to buy a van Hmm. without that being done to him Hmm. there's a a conflict because he wants to treat it differently than what his values are do you believe in karma? karma yes Hmm. yes I actually do because a lot of people talk about luck but you generate your own luck Hmm. when you have a personality when you have values when you have beliefs and you're consistent with them Hmm. and people start to understand that you have a consistency with your values your morals and your beliefs opportunities arise so there's a form of karma mm-hmm. when other people do you wrong and you have done nothing but to help them and they have done you wrong and you know it's that'll eventually catch up on them mm. because they will come across the person who's not going to accept it sure you know uh People, of course, with dubious integrity will get away with as much as they can get away with. Mm. And that's that's human nature. Sure. If you don't have values, mm. that's human nature. Uh, but that will catch up on them. So therefore, karma will catch up. Mm. I have lots of clients come in through, you see my filing cabinets, mm. and you know, you could through some of them files. And, you know, I was working with one lady, I'll tell you the story, she's not even from the town so I can tell you the story and her adult values and beliefs uh, would have been a wee bit of dishonesty around money you know it was causing a conflict Hmm. in her life uh, with her and her husband by the way because there was a there was a hidden credit card that Hmm. he didn't know about and then all of a sudden there was 12 grand on it and he had Hmm. to bail her out so there was a secrecy around money until the shit hits the fan, I suppose. Mm. Let's use that expression. Uh, but there was a value issue. The same person told me she always, always lied, no matter what she bought. There was a lie behind it. Mm. So the pair of shoes, say, cost her 85 quid. Mm. She would go home saying they were in the sale for 25 quid, from 50 pounds to 25 quid. No, she had paid 85 quid for them. There was always lies around stuff. Sure. So these values had to come from somewhere. Now, with the whole emotional intelligence, she has come to a point in her adult life where her values were causing her massive conflict. Mm. And they were now that it had come to a head. But yet she was having this behaviour of secrecy, this behaviour of lying about the money and all, but Mm. she had to learn this somewhere. So part of my job is to make the invisible visible. So my job for her was to take her back to a time when she was doing this dubious behaviour with regards to money. Mm -hmm. And we came across two different things in her life. And believe it or not, one of them was Granda used to give her 50p. But don't be telling your granny. 
don't be telling your mum no the way that grandas do that or here there's there's this point shh don't tell anybody that attitude Mm. so there was always this money involved but don't tell anybody where it came from so that was a value that was starting to build up the other one was that she had a granny who put her into a shop to change labels on biscuits and bread and stuff get the price drop yeah she got a price drop and that was before the, the scans mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so therefore you know it wasn't the, uh, there was no barcode on the food way yeah. back in those days so there's a growing up adult now you know how long barcodes have been about mm-hmm. so that lady has come to me and she's quite old mm. before barcodes mm. and she had something that was programmed into her with regards to her value with regards to money now, wasn't she so relieved when she found that out and was able to change that programming? Think of her relationship now. Think of her honesty now, that she doesn't have to tell lies. Because mm. she was conditioned to have to tell lies. Because what you were getting wasn't really what it was worth. Mm. She was changing prices mm-hmm. on bread and scones and biscuits and stuff and she was taught to do it by the way mm. so she was taught to do it by an authority figure and remember the programming that we have at a young age mm-hmm. is going to make us who we become so it's amazing the whole world of coaching uh, is amazing as a young young person looking back at you what would we have found Look at me back as a young person. Mm. Ah, a bit of a rascal. Mm-hmm. A bit of a rascal. There's two different. When someone feels that they don't have significance in life, because mm-hmm. that's one of our core needs. We need love. We need significance. And I had plenty of love. Mm-hmm. Okay, I had, there was no question about that. I had love. What age are you when you think of this? What? What age are you when you think of you know the rascal in you? Oh, the rascal from oh day one, <laughs> day one. You know, going to school, being a wee bit of a... Do you know the way the teachers sort of just like people? Mm-hmm. Not because they're overly clever. Mm. It's because they're just lovable. Mm-hmm. That, that was me. Okay. Like, I'm 56. I have I can walk into two or three different teachers mm-hmm. who still go up and down Lauren Main Street. And they still stop and we talk. So you had the love, you had the, the connection? I had a connection with them. Mm. Because when you come from a place where you're insignificant or you believe that you're insignificant, mm. one of our core needs is, is, is significance. Mm. When you go into school, if you're not getting that you believe or feel is enough significance, mm. you're going to become one of two people. You're going to become the class clown or the class bully because you're going to get significant somewhere so which were you? yeah I was the clown I was the clown right through primary school to P7 mm-hmm. and I became a bully on P7 I did become a bully in P7 mm. wow and then I became a clown again in Form 1 mm. that's strange that I needed significance and I did clown about and that was fine I got away with blue murder I got away with so much because I must have been funny when I was doing it Mm. and the teachers still remember me not because I was academically 
superior to anybody else. Sure. Because it was a clown. Yeah, I still have the good fun behind me. Mm. Because that's what I got away with when I was my early age. Mm. So it's still like a good bit of fun, good bit of banter. So I would never say that was a negative thing. But yet you were taking home that brown envelope with could do better written on it. Yeah. And then the consequences of that. But the thing was, if you weren't, and, and this is the whole education system at the moment, you know, I've only read maybe a handful of books since I left school. Mm. Uh, they're throwing about terms like dyslexia and stuff at the moment. Uh, for me, not even being interested in reading, I can read, mm. but having no interest. Uh, was I dyslexic? Was I just not getting it? Hmm. Was I a late developer? And we have to go back and look at all these things because hmm. there was people in the classes back then who, and I look back now and I know, I just know there was one person in particular who, who, who took a lot of punishment hmm. because he was always slow. I know he was definitely, definitely dyslexic. Hmm. He just couldn't do it. He didn't have the time to do it. He wasn't processing it. Sure. And and this is part of the education system, and it is changing now because way back then there was thirty people in a class with one teacher. Hmm. And I remember doing a talk in a local school, and I sort of tricked the parents almost into a wee bit of a uh, a journey because I was saying who here has got one kid and they'll put their hands up the parents put their hands up mm. and who's got two kids in the school and you maybe get a couple my goodness two kids right are they hard work oh my goodness they're always fine what about three anybody but three and we went through this whole process we found one lady with four kids and well what's it like at home with four kids you'll not believe what it's like trying to keep them controlled four of them running about they're just crazy so that was a wee bit sneaky of me to start that off because I went on to say then and then you send all them kids into school where one teacher has to look after 30 of them and you've got Tommy coming in with sore Tommy and you've got Susie coming in and she's not feeling well or, and you've got one teacher now looking after 30 kids but not only looking after them you're expecting them to be taught you're expecting them to learn manners you're expecting them to do all these things very true and we sort of started looking at each other and this is what schools were like you had up to 30 kids in a class one teacher teaching one particular way now kids minds are like little sponges hmm. and they want to learn but they're all going to learn differently they're going to learn differently but yet there's only one way to teach so I never see it as a learning difficulty I see it as a teaching difficulty hmm. and I'm not putting down the teachers it's a teaching difficulty in the sense that they need to realise that all kids will learn in a different method and what the teachers need to do is to find out how that child learns and apply those principles to that child how would it how would that look for you or have looked for you 
in school hmm. well, I thought it was just okay it was fine uh, but if we were to apply a teaching methodology to you as a child what would it what, what would be the best way of teaching you probably having a wee bit more patience with actually doing the stuff you know I was deemed to be the stupid one I have another brother by the way he's a year and a half older mm. and he was deemed to be the clever one he's the accountant of course but, uh, but he was deemed to be the clever one which was quite funny because it was only about two or three months ago I found his reports and he was crap <laughs> my reports were better <laughs> no he wasn't crap but he was he was just average perception is illusion okay so hmm. I, I was going through his reports and I said ma look at these reports I could better than that ah but you know Jeff had asked me you know and she was justifying hmm. why he had bad results and I remember at the time he had a tutor come in to help him doing maths and I'm sitting there trying to get my head around fractions and I'm thinking send that man over here mm. you know what I could do with that man not him he knows fractions so what happens is and quite often parents see maybe a skill in one of their kids and they maybe put that extra effort into that kid to encourage them but in my perception I was getting forgotten about and my perception I was the one that needed this extra education so help me but in reality I don't think I was ever going to be interested in academia hmm. I don't think I was ever going to be interested I was hands on and kinesthetic I, I like doing things with my hand I like doing things practically and to be fair that's probably the worst thing I could think about was sitting behind Hmm. an office desk all day which is why I love the site work sure that was hands on you're seeing something imagine sitting in an office your whole life hitting numbers and writing letters and you retire and that's what you spent your life doing in my perception hmm. while I can drive around the countryside I can drive to Bangor and see houses I've built. Mm. I can go up to Londonderry and see houses I was up in there. And go to Antrim, Ballyclare, Larne. Slightly ironic though, we're sitting in an office now. Your office? Yeah, but I'm out and about. I only spend maybe 10 to 20 hours in this office. And all the rest of the time I'm driving about, talking to people, meeting people. Mm. This is my... Uh, it's really a postal code most of the time that we meet out and mm -hmm. about it's never in here yeah, yeah. that's the first time you've ever been in here mm -hmm. yet we've met each other half a dozen eight times maybe yeah. but we've always met outside we've been at different networking events we've mm -hmm. been a cup of coffee a bit of brainstorming a bit whatever mm -hmm. so the office is only a postcode where you come switch on your computer well you had the privilege of taking me through a hypnotherapy session which was eye-opening very eye-opening well, that was one back in yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah yeah and you know that's having direct communication with the subconscious mm -hmm. you know and, and that's you know as a coach and all coaches know that success is a process mm. all coaches know that 
but you have to go through a process. And if you do the same as what other people have done before you, there's no point in you reinventing the wheel. Mm. If you go through the process, the same as someone else has mm. done before you, you will get your result. There's no question about that. Sure. Excellence is a process. There's things that you have to do to become excellent. There's things that you have to do to become successful. But what there is, if you could take that as a sort of a triangle on the top of a pyramid, I suppose, and success is this top, the band below that is decision-making. But you can imagine there's an underbelly, almost as if this pyramid is buried in the sand. Mm. Or you can imagine a wave coming just underneath decision-making, because underneath that is the most important thing, and that is our identity or belief system hmm. or values because that's the real us and there's a lot of coaches and quite rightly so they will coach on the importance of making decision to get success sure but we should be coaching on our identity why can we not make those decisions to get our success hmm. obviously it's something to do with your identity Obviously, is it something to do with your values, your morals, or your beliefs? Are you clearing your identity? Uh, I am now. I have spent a lot of time the last mm. five years. Uh, and this is why I'm saying I was blessed. I went through what I did go through. I was at mm. no point. And I have taken that time to completely break myself down and rebuild myself mm. with regards to who I am. Sure. You know, for someone now to say that they actually love themselves that sounds completely strange for a guy to say that but to actually accept who you are and I've only come to that point maybe mm. two or three months ago What's to that point it's actually total acceptance for who I am that's usually one of my questions but I'm always slightly nervous and saying do you love yourself or like yourself yeah that's good I didn't Hmm. before to the point I was detrimental to my actual existence sure but yes I do and that's not in a cocky way that's that's just accepting who I am right now now I'm far from perfect by the way I am far from perfect because there is no such a thing as perfection. Mm. I've got my mind in the right place. Mm -hmm. You can look at me. I'm a bit overweight. I'm no stranger to a fixed supper. I'm no stranger to a fixed supper. But I need it to get my head in the right place because that was the most important thing to me. Mm. And it's there now. So now I can think about now the vessel that I've got to live in. What do you want? What do you want? I want... Well, I've got it emotionally. I've got freedom. I've got total freedom now. What do you want? I would like to catch up again on where I was. And does that mean investing my time, my energy and resources to building up vast amounts of money? No. No. But I need some money to maybe pursue some of my dreams. Mm. You know, uh, a lot of people think success is money. Success itself is not money, but money will help you 
to get success. Interesting language there. Okay. Some money for some of your dreams. Mm-hmm. Well, one of my dreams would be to travel down China. I'd love to see the Great Wall of China. Mm. Uh, I would love to see Terracotta Army. I'd love to see nature. Mm. Like, okay, we've got that big mountain that we call Slemish here. Mm-hmm. But I would love to go to the Grand Canyon. I would love to go where you see the stone columns. I think it's Ayers Rock. There's a big rock in the middle of a desert, mm-hmm. but there's also pillars of eroded stone. Mm-hmm. How did those pillars stand? And yet everything else around them has been eroded. You used to see it in the old cowboy films. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to see. Because there's natural beauty. The erosion that happened in that countryside, which has chipped away everything, has eroded everything and left this strong column of stone standing. Mm. I, I just like the whole idea of erosion and and seeing the survival of erosion. Like if you go up the Antrim coast, you know, up past Cushion Dun, Cushion Dull, you'll see uh, red sandstone. Mm-hmm. And you can see where there's wee caves and all has been cut into it with the erosion. And you can see the, the mushrooming of the other clouds and the, the veins of the the sediment on it. Mm-hmm. I think that's just beautiful. What, yeah. is, what does it say to you? What's it's saying to me, like no matter how how much we have been eroded, mm. you know, the spine's still there. I'm, I'm still here. There's been a whole lot of stuff taken from around me, mm. I suppose, over my lifetime. Uh, will I build up another portfolio of property? I might, but I'm certainly here for other people who do want to bring up that portfolio. Mm. I'm here as a coach. I'm here as someone who's went through it. I'm here as someone who was caught up with things outside my control and to guide and assist other people. Sure. Because what I went through at the time, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. But yet, on the face of it, on my work side, my business side, I I couldn't have gone any higher. Mm. I couldn't have gone any higher without actually owning the company. Mm. I had total respect within that company. I was in charge of all construction. And mm-hmm. they trusted me so much it was involved from the design side right through. Mm-hmm. You know, with meetings from the architects right through to the final handover of the key. When I say fire in the belly, is it a term you've heard of before or is it Fire in the Belly is this emotion that people when they when they start talking about something that's p- passionate to them mm. and that's actually coming through a wee bit of conflict, coming through a wee bit of a disturbance and making it. Mm. And actually knowing that, whoa, that was close. <laughs> that was a close shave, that one. But you're through the other side. Sure. And that's that's like me. There's fire in the belly because what I've come through, I wouldn't say I've come through an awful lot, really. But I do know that I can now, I have enough tools and I'm well equipped to help anybody else who's went through the same as what I went through. Mm. Uh, I'm here to encourage people to take risks to take risks but take calculated risks Mm. 
I'm here to help people to, if they're going to take a business risk, a business decision, to have it calculated. Don't get emotionally attached to it. Mm. I can tell people that from personal experience. You know, you get emotionally attached to your family and that's a good thing mm-hmm. and that's where you should be emotionally attached to sure. and making decisions around your emotions and all the rest but keep your business world separate mm. and go out there and have the fire in the belly and do what your goals are so if there's one word what would you describe it as passion mm. passion and you I can give you three words grit determination it's actually going out there with that fire, with that belief, with that true grit. How do you get that? I mean, how do you inspire it or get it or nourish it? Or You first of all have to have a concept of what you want. Okay. You need a concept of what you want. You need to have a goal there. How can you be passionate if you're floating in the wind? Mm-hmm. Like, a, like, a, like a plastic bag floating about out there how can it be passionate mm-hmm. it's just floating about the wind's just taking it wherever it wants to go for you to go somewhere you have to be like an arrow you have to know where you want to go mm-hmm. you have to put the energy behind it you have to be like an arrow which has got a target it's out in front you know where you're going and you have the energy behind and you're drawn back that energy that passion that mm-hmm. grit that determination to go straight for that yeah, it might not be a straight line. Hmm. <laughs> there will be a few curveballs along that line. But that's the concept. And you have to have the belief. There's no point in doing something unless you have a belief. And you have to fuel in the tank. That's another thing one of my coaches told me, Daniel Tolson. Uh, you need 50 reasons why you want it. Mm-hmm. You need 50 reasons why you want it. When he was training us, we had to do 101 reasons. Mm-hmm. But if you write down 50 reasons why you want something, you're going to have fuel in the tank. Because what's going to happen is you're going to hit stumbling blocks, you're going to hit hurdles. And if you have no fuel in the tank, if you have no determination, you're, you're just going to shrug the shoulders and walk away. Like when the light bulb was being made, was it not the thousandth time or something? Mm-hmm. Edison. Edison. That was... He failed so many times hmm. and then he had a light bulb and he hit it because he had fuel in the tank and that's what fire in the belly is fire in the belly is fuel in the tank a goal set and you have enough to energy you have enough passion you have enough grit you have enough determination to pull back that bow and generate that energy and let that arrow fly will you get it right the first time no but that's why you have a quiver (laughs) that's why you have more than one arrow Mm -hmm. you don't go into the Indians never come into war with one arrow and one bow (laughs) they had a quiver confidence yeah okay so you're going to do it you're going to be determined you're going to be determined you make it close the first time be determined and change your strategy of course Mm. if you're not doing uh, that's what we do a lot of people spend their whole life trying to reach a goal Mm. and they spend their whole life doing the same thing if you're not getting your results with doing 
what you're doing. Mm. Come back out of it a minute. Just step back and reassess what you're doing. If I do that again, I'm going to get the same result. Sure. Is that result going to be the one that I want? No, it's not. Right, step back. Then take a different strategy. Mm. And you will find the right strategy. And it might not be the same, exactly the same strategy as someone else has used. Mm. You're quite... Um perceptive at self-reflection it seems anyway just from from observing you and from listening you're you're very well you you come across as being very good at analyzing yourself or looking at your i spent a long time doing it Hmm. i spent a long time doing it Uh, when i came to that point in my life and that's where I, was, I feel I was blessed that I, I was taken to that point, but not any further. Mm. Uh, when you look back on that and you think, no, I was fortunate. I'm okay. Lauren has an awful lot of suicides in it. And every town has. Mm. You know, there's 84 people in the UK commit suicide every week. That's, mm. that's a lot. Mm. There's one every two hours committing suicide somewhere in the UK. And these are down to various reasons. And I could have been one of those statistics. Uh, and when I have a, an opportunity mm. to help, and even by telling my story, help others to just give yourself a break. Just give yourself a break. Just mm. just slow down a minute. Those voices in your head are not real. Mm. Because consciously no one, as I said earlier, consciously no one ever wants to hurt themselves. Sure. Okay? Consciously. Nobody wants to hurt themselves. So mm. therefore there must be something in the underbelly of that. There's something must be in their identity or their belief system. Mm. And that's where I specialize. And because now I have those tools, that's where I can help other people. Because we're destined. I actually believe there's a God. Okay. I personally believe that. There's there's people who believe in universal energy and, and brilliant. Uh, and there is universal energy all around us. I just happen to believe that there's someone who produced that universal energy. My pyramid goes up that wee bit higher maybe than some other people. Do you believe in afterlife? Uh, I believe in afterlife, yes. Uh, And again, that is my conditioning. That's the conditioning I was brought up. And being so open-minded and people sort of saying, well, sure no one's ever come back from it. Hmm. Well, you're living in a wee bit of hope. I would rather hope that there's an afterlife mm. than hope that there's nothing. Sure. So I can choose on that hope mm. as well. Has there been any proof? Well, the scientists will say, well, nobody's ever come back, so therefore there's no proof. Mm. But I hope I'm going to have my dinner when I go home tonight. <laughs> you know, and if you're going to put out faith and hope, and hope that you're going to take the right business opportunities and hope Mm. that you're going to see all these things well I can hope that as well because it'd be really really sad to think that at the Mm. end of all this we just get buried 
Sure. You know, have a sad to think that. In doing this, I mean, I'm looking at the wall of certificates. I mean, what has that taught you, the whole thing, and, and helping others? Well, you don't need them. Mm-hmm. You don't need them. The only reason why you need all those is to be insured. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's an insurance thing. Yeah. And it could be an assurance to clients. Assure, yeah, insurance to, and assurance. Yep. To, to be fair enough. Sure. Because you don't want to go to a brain surgeon who's just out of college last week. Hmm. I would rather go to a brain surgeon who's been doing brain surgery for the last 10 years. Hmm. So you can get a wee bit of comfort knowing that I'm qualified to Ad, do what adds I'm to doing. your own levels and as to me whole level. <laughs> but the thing is, it's 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 not an expression I use, and I heard it years ago. You know, don't sell the sausage, sell the sizzle. Mm. It's the sizzle, it's the the results. It's cooks down sausages. Yeah, it's the results that you want. And people who come here, they'll get results. Hmm. And the reason why I know they'll get results is because I have lots of ways of cooking the sausage to get those results. You know, so I'm not limited hmm. to one particular uh, modality. Hmm. I've got lots and lots of different modalities. Sure. Uh, I've been in industry all my life. I've been to the top of my game within the construction industry. Hmm. So I know management, I know manufacture. Uh, I know who I am now. I know how a human can hate himself so much that he wants to end his life. But then I also know how a human can actually love himself. What's that taught you? It's taught me that we're all capable of being who I am mm. and we're all when, when I do a bit of uh, a bit of coaching and when I do a few workshops I, you probably know me and I like a wee bit of a joke and a laugh mm-hmm. you know I'll come out with things that's going to draw attention to people so the first thing I'd say you're all one in a million and they're all looking at me thinking yeah one in a million blah, blah, blah. you're the sperm that fertilised the egg and all of a sudden you've got someone's attention <laughs> but that's exactly who we are mm. we were the fittest at the time of our conception we were that swimmer mm-hmm. okay and I think if everybody remembers that we are the product mm. of that so you were born you were conceived as a winner you were the first person to reach that egg okay so that in itself after that then when you were born you were born an equal you were born an equal you were born with the same chance the same opportunity as anybody else okay so you were born as part of this creation and then what happens you pick up the baby and you detach it from creation you cut the umbilical cord and you give it over to a couple of parents and they're looking at each other and saying, what the heck do we do with this? And there's no instructions come. Mm. You get an instruction with a toaster, don't you? Yep. Yeah. We don't come with instructions. And what happens is we are then brought into this world and we are then conditioned by 
the people around us. Whether right or wrong, it doesn't matter. Mm. But we are certainly conditioned. Sure. You know, uh, and that's where it all starts. Mm. Now, if I was born in France, would I be a different person? Yeah, certainly wouldn't have this accent. Mm-hmm. Talk a different language, have a different set of values and beliefs and morals. Well, I don't know about morals, but certainly beliefs. Mm. I would eat snails. Yeah. <laughs> but I wouldn't do that now. Mm. When you're born into your family, your parents, as I said earlier on, they will bring you up to the best of their ability mm-hmm. with the information that they have at the time. Sure. And that's all we can ask for. So you will be conditioned. Some people are brought up. Some people are trailed up. Some people are left abandoned mm. when they're first born. And that's going to have an effect on us as we grow up. So I think we have to be grateful that we've been put into good families. Mm. We have to be grateful that we maybe had tough love. Yes, I was the cane was used with me. I was brought up through guilt. But having said that, I still have those values and morals and beliefs sure. that was hammered into me. So I can't take that away from my mum and dad. Mm. Would I do it different with my own kids? Yes, I did. Not with the firstborn, with the mm. other ones. And by the way, the firstborn, you're not the firstborn, are you? No. No. See the firstborn. See what they complain about. I never got away with that. I had to be in for seven o'clock and you can stay out till nine o'clock. That's right, because mum and dad hadn't a clue what to do with the firstborn. Mm. They were only practicing on the firstborn for you then to have it easy. Mm. And that's, I suppose, my firstborn was the same. I brought him up with the information that I had. Mm. And I think I brought him up pretty good. He's one of the top programmers. And, well, he goes to Macedonia and goes to the LA two or three times a year to meet the rest of his team. He's into programming, computer programming. So I didn't do him any damage the same way as I'm not damaged. Sure. But the rest of it had an easier life. Do you have any idea of your potential or how much you're doing at the moment and how much you could do? My potential with... What type of potential are you talking about? Are you talking monetary? Are you talking helping others? What? It's whatever way you perceive the question. Oh, okay. Good question then. <laughs> <laughs> My potential at the moment. I, As I said, uh, and one of the coaches that I have been mentoring under, Pat Slattery, he came out with the expression, he wants to die empty. I love that expression. Mm. So my potential is, uh, although I don't want massive amounts of millions of pounds in the bank, I would like to die empty. Mm. I would like to see these eroded rocks in the Grand Canyon. I want to go to Ayers Rock in Australia. I want to to visit New Zealand where it's really wet. And mm. A bit like, a bit like Ireland, only more hilly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would, I would. I would love to go around and see the Great Wall of China. I would mm. love to do these things. Sure. How am I going to get there? I need money to take me there. Mm. So my potential is to give back into society what 
I'm here to do. Hmm. Uh, if I get rewarded with regards to my journey, well, albeit, uh, all my kids are all self-sufficient. They've all turned out okay. And I'm very grateful for that. Uh, so, yeah, my potential is to take, well, I'm 56 now. What have I got? Another 20 years, maybe. But who knows? To enjoy it. Mm. To really connect now with myself in the last few years of my life. To connect with Denise and as my wife and the two of us just go somewhere out into the sunset. Take lots of weekends together. Mm-hmm. Uh, to continue to help others. To continue to encourage others. To continue to coach others. Hold them accountable. Sure. Because, you know, that's the important part of coaching is the accountability mm-hmm. side. And you encourage them. You push them. You bring them along with you. That, that would be my life. I, I would be so honoured and grateful if I could spend the rest of my life just doing that. Mm. Well, so tell me how can we, uh, well, how can we see in the future? What's what's coming up for you, and how can we get? Uh, how can the listeners get in touch with you? Right. Well, I've got my web uh, site, which is kenfalconer.com. Uh, you can come on there you can see what I'm doing uh, I use social media quite a lot I'm doing seminars we're, we're going to do a retreat in February we're, we're going to do a winter retreat myself and two other coaches mm-hmm. and we're going to take a chosen few out to Lanzarote for five days where we're going to Allow those people to disconnect from their busy life. Mm-hmm. Take them out and reconnect them. And recharge them. And bring them back. Ready to hit 2020. Wow. Feet going. That's my goal for 200 or 2020. It's, it's the whole 2020 thing, isn't it? It's all sure. vision. It's all clarity. It's, and I'm working on that whole concept of... 2020 vision get clarity anybody out there doesn't know what they're doing anybody out there who's never set goals Mm. anybody out there who are on that hamster wheel of life and there's lots of people there we get up every day do the same thing they're on the hamster wheel if you're happy enough in that hamster wheel stay there but I would suspect you're not and I would take a side step if I was you come off the hamster wheel of life take a risk sure take a calculated risk do something that you've never done before and coming into the new year the new decade mm. make it yours mm. make it yours and there's help and support from people all around us sure I, I take it this is going out to Northern Ireland just or is this no it's UK worldwide Okay, so you know, there's people around you, mm. there's people there, there's people who will support you, mm. and ask for help. Yeah, please ask for help. Mm. You know, give someone the opportunity 
to help you. Sure. Because that in itself is a big thing. That in itself is what I would do quite a bit. And I would go into a wee local restaurant and I would see an empty table. Or a table with, sorry, with people in it. I would, I would buy to me. I would do that from time to time. And you know the wee glow that you get in your chest? <laughs> that you've just done something and it's anonymous and you walk out and they go up to pay for it. And all of a sudden, no, it's paid. And they're looking at each other. You did it. Oh, it doesn't matter. It's just, it's paid. See that happiness that they would feel? When you don't ask your friends, your colleagues, your peers for help, you're taking away that mm. happy feeling from them because they're more than happy to help you. Mm. So don't be selfish and do it yourself. Yeah. Don't be selfish and go your, your own way because it can be a, lo- a, a real long and lonely road. Collaborate with people, talk to people, ask for help because when you ask the right people the right people do mm. want to give that help do you and still have the shitty committee in your head the shitty committee that's them me guys that used to sit around the back of my shoulder <laughs> no they're not there anymore they're not there I can switch off now completely mm. I actually bought a, a cephalograph here where you can measure brain activity oh wow okay and yeah it's it there and I can actually put that on and have zero thoughts wow I was going to ask I mean, what, I mean your, your, what's your pattern or your routine now I mean do you have a structure that you work to or work by uh, well when I have coaching calls I'm up every Monday morning at 6 o'clock uh, I use local coaches mm-hmm. uh, all the coaches will specialise in certain things sure and coaches if they don't have coaches they should have coaches mm-hmm because you'll go to another coach, they'll specialise in something else and you'll 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 feed off them. Yeah. You will get information. And that's the whole concept of helping each other. It's a network. So it works, you've got a network of people around you. And that's what I do. Mm. I still get coaching from other people. I mm-hmm. then can take that information. Sure. And coach the other way. I was I was trained down sort of the Brian Tracy. Okay. Uh, side of the tree mm-hmm. like it's all really coming from the same root and the same trunk but I was brought down the Australian side the Brian Tracy side and then mm-hmm. over on the other side the Bob Proctor uh, Tony Robbins side so you know when I come down that side of the tree and then I've met a few guys who come down the American side of the tree mm-hmm. uh, that really interested me because you know the old 80-20 rule Sure. The 80-20 rule is, well, say there's 100 different concepts or different strategies or or uh, modalities within the whole learning concept. Yeah. People use sort of the top 80 and dump the 20 or sometimes it's the other way around. And to be able to go to other people who have been trained by different people you're getting a different style. You're getting the same information because it's it's all available out there. Sure. And you're getting different perspectives. You're getting different personalities. Hmm. And one person who is giving you the same message, you could go to someone else the next day and they could give you the exact same message and deliver it differently. Sure. And all of a sudden you've got it. 
Mm. It's, it now becomes real. And this is what we need to do. We need to go out and we need to expand our awareness of people out there and teachers out there and people who have done it before you, by the way. Mm. <laughs> people who have done it before you. And talk to them. Mm. And feel their energy. Would you, would you describe yourself as intuitive or, you know, you obviously you're saying understanding about the energy side? Uh, yeah, I'm a good, I'm a, I'm a good reader of a person, yes. Mm. That wouldn't take me that long to, even when I'm interviewing people, you're sitting opposite me here just for the, the podcast, you're sitting opposite me. Mm. And if I was to interview you, I would probably take half my information from your physiology. Sure. Okay, I would lift it from your your shoulders going up or down, your breathing. I would take your eye patterns. Uh, that yeah, that be twitch there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly feeling under under pressure. Yeah. So you know, and, and when you're talking to people, and when you're doing an intake, hmm. and this is why when you're doing an intake and you're talking to someone, you can get the real them by, you know, seven percent of our communications words. Okay. Seven. Seven percent. Fifty-five percent is physiology. Okay. And thirty-eight percent is tonality. The way we talk. The way we talk. Now, I was talking to uh, a lady last month. Mm -hmm. And it's just a wee tip. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I asked her, she was tele-seals. Now, remember, seven percent of our communication is the words that we say. Hmm. So therefore we have to depend on physiology and tonality. Hmm. So what she does before she answers any phone call or makes any phone call, she says to herself, I am extremely charming. Go ahead, say that. I am extremely charming. Yeah, you can't say it without smiling. (laughs) You cannot say that phrase without smiling. Mm, True. So if you're saying that, I am extremely charming on the phone, before you pick up the phone, straight away now, you can actually hear me smiling. Mm -hmm. And the people on this podcast can hear me smiling. Sure. So now I have just bought into physiology. Mm. So they now have an image in their head of someone smiling at them. Then you use your tonality. So communication is... 7% 7% words hmm. so use the other stuff sure. this is why the black and white silent movies were so good that's why they were worldwide because it was what they call slapstick comedy hmm. there were no words there at all but yet people could watch a film which lasted a whole hour and they could have people enthralled because they knew the whole storyline yeah there was communication without words. The old Laurel and Hardy's. Mm-hmm. Charlie Chaplin. Buster Keaton. All those. Yeah. And remember them from years ago. And no words. Yeah, touched her. Huh? So, you know, when we're communicating with people, we need to use our tonality. We need to use our voice. We need to use like I'm sitting here and I know mm-hmm. this is a podcast mm-hmm. and I'm using my hands mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm talking with my hands mm-hmm. because I'm talking to you as if I'm standing talking to you in a stage or somewhere yeah 
so you're buying into your physio- physiology and just be aware that it's more than voice it's more than just words stand erect hold your head high be proud of who you are and then say what you need to say if you come onto stage with your hands in your pocket and your head down looking at your books and you mumbled what's people going to think about you mm. very true what are you what are you most proud of or what are you proud of what am I proud of uh, I'm proud of my family mm. I'm proud of my wife that just stuck me all these years uh, I'm proud that I had a very successful construction life mm-hmm. uh, I'm proud that the journey that I'm on now I feel semi-retired in one sense but I still put in the hours mm. uh, I'm very grateful that no matter what job I have been in all my life I have enjoyed it and that's, that's important for me I, I'm a fun guy I, I like fun and mm. uh, I'm I'm proud I'm back in control yeah I'm proud that I'm back in control well Kenny it's been an absolute privilege thank you very much okay thank you very much Pete and we look forward to catching up again in the future and see where you've gone and your retreats and what else is in store so yeah we'll have a few workshops we'll have retreats we'll have teaching I'm going to uh, go forward and I'm going to train other people in the use of hypnotherapy as well that'll be starting in the new year right and yeah looking forward 2020 2020 clear vision love it clear vision it's 2020 vision for the future new decade drop all the crap behind no matter what it was Mm. let it go we're going into 2020 let's go in with clarity let's go in with focus let's go in and do something love it Kenny, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Okay, thank you very much. Take care. Thank you. Well, that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly. You know, this really wouldn't be possible without our great guests taking the time to share their personal journeys. And boy, boy, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that people have been on. We've loads more episodes coming up soon and it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. So, all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly, and be the mightiest version of you.